Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today I have a interesting guest. Mikey Siegel, um, he did a TED Talk at TEDx, uh, I believe, Santa Cruz on robotics and consciousness and uh, consciousness hacking. So I'm really glad to talk to him. Uh, Mikey, how are you doing? I- I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah. So I know listeners probably won't have uh, watched the TED Talk yet, but um, if you can, just give like a brief intro of yourself and where you're at right now, and then you know we'll get into our topic, and maybe you can discuss... Um, how you came to um, be interested in this topic as well. Yeah, totally. Um, so a bit of background, as you mentioned, I have a, a background in robotics, and I can, I can talk a little more about that later. And where I, where I am now is actually uh, looks it's quite different from robotics. Um, everything that I'm doing right now is focused at the intersection of um, engineering and technology, and then a very unlikely uh, counterpart, which is um, consciousness, well-being, meditation, human flourishing, really thinking about what is our um, the human potential in terms, of, in terms of human experience, in terms of the way that we can feel and connect to each other, and how technology can support that. And so uh, in pursuit of that, um, I have a, a teaching position uh, at Stanford University. So I teach a couple classes over there. Um, all focused around this area, which is pretty fun. And then I also um, have a community that I started called Consciousness Hacking. And this is continues to grow pretty fast. I think we're up to almost close to 30 communities around the world now, um, wow. you know, well over 10,000 people. And this has been totally organic. Um, there's no marketing, there's no advertising, there's nothing like that. And this is a, a community that is just spontaneously emerging around this this question and this exploration of how how can technology support well-being and how can technology best serve humanity? And this is a lot of people that are interested in meditation. They're interested in psychology, positive psychology, um, in neuroscience, mental health, and they're also interested in meditation, consciousness, yoga, therapy, these kinds of things. Um, and then the last uh, area that a lot of my time goes into is um, well, aside from doing, you know, interviews and talks and traveling and all this kind of stuff, which is a, a lot of time, um, is designing and working on technology projects. And um, one of my main interest areas is how technology can be used to support human connection, because I see um, that we are, in some senses, more and more connected by technology, um, but in other ways, we're um, lonelier and more socially isolated than we've ever been. Um, and mm-hmm. so my interest is in how technology can support um, the, the, a healthy connection, a really deep connection, a kind of connection that um, uh, supports human thriving. Okay. And then in your TED Talk, um, I guess you worked in Silicon Valley. You were unfulfilled and anxious, and you went on a what you call a vision quest. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. What what did you do in brief and what changed in you uh, that made you want to go in a different direction? What did you gain from it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for asking. Um, so 
my my life is growing up has really been um, in many ways like the life of an engineer in the sense that I've um, I've been excited about about understanding how things work and taking things apart and you know loving science and and um, exploring and understanding the world and also the other side of that is um, very much in my head very rational. Um, very, um, very much a, a logical approach to life. And as I was finishing graduate school, um, and I, I did my graduate work at the MIT Media Lab, and it was, you know, kind of a, a dream come true to be able to work there and to work on these really cool robotics projects. Um, and, and, and all through when I was working there, the, the work was really fun, really interesting, really cool. And at the same time, there was this sinking feeling that I, I never knew why I was doing what I was doing. You know, I, I wasn't connected to a deeper sense of purpose. Like, like how is this really helping the world, right? And I, I could come up with reasons. I could be like, oh, we're going to be helping elderly people in Japan, you know, with you know companion robots or you know something like that. But I knew that it was just my logical brain coming up with a reason. And so I left graduate school with kind of two sharp realities hitting me. First one was, um, even though I was doing really fun and cool stuff, I didn't know why, and it wasn't meaningful for me in a deep way. But the second sharp reality was even more significant. And that was that I had just finished this graduate program that I was so excited about and thought was going to be sort of my like key to happiness. And, and to be honest, I really felt like crap coming out of graduate school. Um, and it was not new. It was a kind of a continuation of sort of anxiety and disconnection. And, and, um, and the, you know, the short, the short story there is I left graduate school and I went immediately from there to a, a basically like a two month uh, yoga and meditation retreat. And it was a real deep dive. And, and the deep dive was, was into this whole other part of myself. Um, this all other part of reality that I that I hadn't really explored, which is my inner world. And from an engineer's perspective, I had you know sort of missed half the equation. You know, half the equation I was looking at was kind of the outer world and all the stuff I was doing and the reality I was building for myself. But I was disconnected from my emotional experience. I was disconnected from my mind. I didn't really understand my mind. Um, and I, and I, what I realized is there's an entire universe inside of me. And um, and and the the realization that I had was that um, was that it would be impossible for me to create change in the world and solve problems in the world meaningfully um, if I didn't solve problems within myself. Because I realized that okay. um, all of the confusion and all of the um, uh, biases and beliefs and pain and fear and anger and greed that I was holding within myself. Um, I was sort of blindly projecting into the world. Um, and so I, I was really interested in um, how technology can support um, changing humans and making humans better from the inside out. So, <clears throat> okay, you had a sense of disconnection and anxiety and not knowing where to go and what to do. And, you know, what changed? Did it change when you went on your trip around the world? Did it just slowly change? Was it a sudden thing? Did you have a, a sudden yeah. realization? You know, what how is it different now? What happened? Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking. I'm kind of telling you sort of short version of the story. Um, well, 
in some ways, it's it's like a long, gradual process that continues. It's probably a lifelong process, and then it's definitely punctuated by some really intense experiences. Um, one experience that I remember is um, I was on a meditation retreat, and it was um, it was different than the one I had told you about. I, I kind of got pretty excited and spent quite a while um, really trying to explore my inner world, trying to understand it. And I was sitting in a lot of discomfort. Um, this was about a day seven of a 10-day retreat where you're meditating probably um, 12 hours a day, 13 hours a day in total wow. silence. And, you know, it's really painful on the, on the knees and on the legs and on the back, um, just sitting for that much. Um, aside from, you know, that's, that's, that's small compared to sort of the psychological, you know, the intensity of just, you know, feeling this urge, you just want to run out of the room, you know, and, and you just are feeling that. And that's really what the process is like is sitting and doing something that we almost never do, which is actually just listening, just being there listening without any need to change things or react um, or fix it or run away from it or run towards it, but just actually sitting and being with our experience. And it's funny, we're so distracted and we're, um, we're in so many ways um, avoiding how we feel that to take time to do that is, is quite drastic, really. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just feeling the discomfort and I'm just really allowing it to be there. And in, in, a, in a moment, really, just like in a split second, my entire experience shifted. And that shift was from a sense of a real discomfort and pain and wanting to just jump out of my skin and run out of this room full of silent people, you know, sitting, um, to still feeling that pain, still feeling that discomfort, but all of a sudden being absolutely fundamentally okay with it. And it wasn't like some sort of super, you know, mystical, psychedelic kind of experience. It was the most clear, coherent, um, and, and, and honest that I'd ever felt. It was like actually seeing reality as it is. And it was, uh, it was this wake-up call because it was a realization to me of, um, of the degree to which we have a capacity to actually be here, to actually be present, to actually really experience reality as it is. And in that, there was so much clarity. Things made so much sense, not just what was happening for me, but all of a sudden, all these issues I was having in my life, I could see through them because I wasn't, the part of me that was trying to fight them or change them or judge them was turned off. That part of my brain was just deactivated. And so I could all of a sudden look with a neutral, clear mind. Um, and it was brilliant. It was incredible. And I also realized, in part, um, how much pain and suffering and judgment and fear I was perpetuating in the world um, blindly without seeing it. And so the, the couple things that I took from that were one, like realizing, wow, if this is possible, right, if this is a part of the human experience, and, and really what I've learned later in, in exploring, um, you know, spiritual traditions, uh, meditation uh, paths, and talking to a lot of different people is what I experience is just a, a, a whisper, you know, just a tiny glimmer of what's possible, right? These, 
these uh, 20, 30,000 hour meditators are being scanned right now in neuroscience labs across the world. And these guys are in a whole different world. And so what I realized, if this is possible, right, for the human experience, I don't want to work for anything else. There's nothing else that I'm interested in trying to engineer, in trying to support on this planet than that experience, because it was clear to me that if that experience and and that space of experience was made more available and that humanity could shift into that space, which is more compassionate, more accepting, more clear, less judgmental, then we could change the world from the inside out. And we would live in a very, very, very different reality. And so that's where I, I, it was clear to me that as an engineer, the only problem I wanted to solve and the only thing I wanted to work on was really curing human insanity, right? was really bringing humanity to a space of clarity and acceptance um, and and compassion. Hmm. Well, I don't know if I understand what you're saying because I guess at first it seems nebulous. It does seem like a great goal. But are you able to give any concrete examples? Maybe that's not even possible. But you know, like what are some things you've done or noticed, or interactions you've had that uh, are now different because of the way you feel? And you know, how can other people start to experience this if they're not meditating right in this moment? But you know, what are some things they're not aware of that you can help make them aware of? Yeah. So really, what I'm talking about is um, is hugely, hugely. Um, um, available and, and even popular right now, I would say. Um, you know, what I'm, what I'm pointing to is nothing different than, for example, what, what mindfulness, the mindfulness movement is pointing towards, right? I mean, this is, this is mindfulness in a sense, right? And there is a huge amount of research, um, a huge amount of science behind the, the efficacy of mindfulness, but also around how to teach mindfulness and make it available. And so, um, anyone listening to this can can um, find hundreds of ways of beginning to approach, um, you know, space of experience. And really, all that's being pointed to is um, this idea that by changing our relationship to ourselves, we can also change our relationship to the world, right? By being kinder to ourselves and more present with ourselves, um, that it changes the way that we feel, and then it changes the way we relate to others and changes the way we view reality. Um, and, um, and so, um, and, and the cool thing here is, is that where I'm picking up is really where science has been, um, building and building and building momentum. And so 20, 25 years ago, it was really taboo to talk about, uh, meditation in a, in a scientific context. It was considered a kind of a religious or spiritual phenomenon. Now, I mean, at Stanford, for example, there's probably three, four, five completely different initiatives, neuroscience projects that are looking at, really deeply looking at the neuroscience of meditation. And that's one of probably, you know, a hundred plus universities, probably hundreds of universities around the world that have projects that are studying the science of uh, meditation and, and well-being. And you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of research papers and studies at this point. Um, and so to kind of give a concrete example of how does this transition, you know, it's like, okay, well, so, okay, I get it. Um, there's this possibility um, for 
human beings to change their experience, to feel differently. And I'm, I'm sure many of the people listening to this um, have had experiences in their life, um, whether it's watching a beautiful sunset or, you know, a moment of inspiration or during an extreme sport or playing a musical instrument where they've been in flow or they felt really connected or they felt really clear, uh, you know, a peak experience. So we all, we all have some sense of, of what, what that kind of means, right? And so okay, if yeah. we know that that's real and possible, and we also know that, okay, now the science is well underway, we're beginning to understand what those experiences look like in the brain and in the body. Well, how does that bridge to engineering, right? How do we make that real? How do we bring it into the world? Um, there's a, a million answers to that, right? And, and, uh, and I, I'm going to give you one concrete example, um, but just to ground things, um, um, me and Nicole Bradford and Jeffrey Martin uh, founded the Transformative Technology Conference. And that's an entire conference, which is going to be in its third year, which is just exploring these possibilities. So there's a lot out there. So I just want to preface by saying that. Um, but I'll, as an example, um, I'll point to the work of a researcher named Judson Brewer, who was at Yale, did his work, this work at Yale, and now he's continuing it at uh, UMass in Massachusetts. First, he did um, the classical neuroscientific exploration of what do these really deep states of meditation look like in the brain? So you take these guys that have meditated for 20, 30,000 hours, you scan their brain using EEG and fMRI, and what they identified um, was a particular part of the brain that they thought was most representative of these deep states of meditation. And what they found was every time they went into this um, meditation experience, um, this part of the brain um, de was deactivated. And then they took it a step further, right? And this is, this is where things get interesting. Um, they took novice meditators, people that had very little meditation experience. They gave them basic instruction on meditation. And then they put them um, inside of a, uh, an fMRI machine, a machine that can actually scan and, and monitor what's happening inside of your brain. And as these novice meditators are sitting inside this machine, they're actually looking at a screen which shows what's happening inside their brain. And it's specifically showing the activity in this one part of their brain that has to do with this deep state of meditation. And so they can literally see visually the depth of their meditation experience. And this is basically like having an extremely intuitive meditation teacher literally talking to you and telling you what's happening inside your brain. And this is called neurofeedback, a very advanced form of neurofeedback. And the phenomena, which is well-established, is that by actually seeing what's in your brain um, and having this feedback loop where you can interpret it through your eyes and then uh, monitor your own experience, you can rapidly accelerate the rate at which people can learn how to meditate. And you have these novice meditators that are all of a sudden learning not just how to change this part of their brain very quickly, but they're learning how to enter into these deep states of meditation very quickly. And what this points to is this possibility, not just using this half a million dollar piece of equipment, but what happens if okay. using virtual reality, wearables, apps, games, um, you know, you name it, what happens when all of a sudden um, we're able to guide people towards spaces of experience that might have taken 20, 30,000 hours to get to traditionally. And we're able to accomplish that in hundreds or tens of hours. How, how would things be different? Hmm. 
So what kind? So have you tried? Um, what is it? A an app that talks to you, or what, is it a physical piece of technology? What is this system that gives you this feedback? What does it look like? Um, so the uh, you mean the technology I just described? Yes. Yeah, it's 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 an fMRI machine. So we're talking about a huge, expensive piece of equipment that is, sits in a lab. You sl- literally slide into the machine, and what you're looking at is a, is a screen that's inside of that machine. Now, that's just one example. These guys now have have totally um, streamlined that. They're now they're now able to accomplish the same thing using EEG, which instead of being a huge machine, they basically have um, these little electrodes that are sort of you know, stuck on your scalp, um, which are just measuring your brain activity. And so you, instead of having this huge machine, now you have these little dangling wires, you know, coming off your head. And they're actually able to have the same efficacy using, using that. But, but again, um, you can walk into Best Buy right now and you can buy a very minimal consumer version of this. There's, a, for example, a product called the Muse, M-U-S-E. And this is consumer neurofeedback. Um, and like even, you know, for example, even my parents have one and, you know, they, they never would consider meditating. It's like totally outside of their culture. It's just not, it's not something that's on their radar, but I, I'm, I want them to be, you know, to, to be mentally healthy, you know, um, and to have, you have good sort of mental hygiene, which is a lot of what meditation is about. And so I bought them one of these Muse devices and because it's a technology, and it's not even called meditation. You know, they, they send me these selfies and they're like, hey, we're, you know, we're musing. And um, it's, uh, um, it's this incredible revolution in making this, this culturally accessible. And, you know, the way the muse works is like the way this big machine works. You stick headphones on, you, um, you know, you, you put this headband on that goes behind your ears that monitors your brain. And then you're listening to the sound and what it sounds like is ocean waves and, and um, wind blowing. And the more active your mind is, the more the wind blows. And the more your mind calms down, the more the wind dies down. And if hmm. you don't know what meditation is and you're just starting and, so, and you're like, someone says to you, go meditate. You're like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? This actually tells you what to do, right? This actually gives you the real insight into your brain. Right. And you have technologies now that um, like the Spire, which monitors your breathing um, throughout the day to help you r- reduce stress. You have a project called Leaf, L-I-E-F, that is an actual stick on wearable that uh, sticks onto your like uh, upper ribs that monitors your heart rate variability, which is connected to stress and connected to sort of a physiological balance. And it's... Um, Again, it's, it's monitoring you throughout the entire day. And as you're getting stressed, it helps you to kind of nudge and support you in relaxing, teaching you how to breathe and teaching you how to build healthier habits around stress, um, stress management, and, and ultimately well-being and happiness. So, yeah, I mean, for instance, whatever your parents noticed or whatever people that have used the, uh, you know, the big machine that's in the lab notice, you know, I know that they're able to meditate essentially with the help of, uh, well, they're able to meditate a lot more efficiently and faster, but are they reaching the same benefits and goals as people that have meditated for years? Or is there something different and special that they're reaching uh, with these machines and this technology? Like, what are the anecdotal yeah. um, responses you heard from people? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, for these, like the first example I described with the the um, 
the more like lab based research. Um, I think um, I, I don't know what the latest um, uh, what the latest is in terms of them actually doing clinical trials in in terms of understanding the efficacy of it. Um, but my understanding is that the stage it's at right now is they're they're just trying to show that it can be effective at a basic level that it works and it's still at the early stages. Um, now um, the I think that broadly speaking, um, a lot of this technology is still at an early stage. If you you know for example, if you want to talk about the um, the scientifically proven benefits of more classical meditation or things like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's a ton of data and a ton of literature that exists out there on that. But if you want to talk about the same level of research done on the technology itself, um, I don't think that that quite exists yet. I think that that's still, um, I think that that's still at an early stage. And right okay. now, what they're sort of what they're sort of writing on is basically they're saying, "Look, we know meditation works, and what this is basically doing is it's either um, in the case of like the apps, for example, like Headspace or Insight Timer, they're basically the apps are doing like guided meditation. So on what they would say is, well, we're basically just delivering meditation, so we know that it works because the scientific literature already says so." Um, but then the stuff that's a little more um, uh, interactive, like the Muse headset, for example, um, I, I know that they're actively doing research right now. Um, and I don't know what the results of that are, um, but that's actually, I think they have probably a couple dozen um, research projects that are in the works exploring the efficacy of the technology. Yeah. And then again, just anecdotally, what, um, what have you heard from friends, family, you know, when they've used either Amuse or they've used the machine in the lab or, you know, what have uh, they said to you? What have they reported? Totally. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, for example, um, all of my students at some point use the Muse and I teach two classes. One's called Technology Augmented Meditation and one's called um, Wired for Wellness, the Technology and Human Flourishing. Um, and um, and um, I have students that absolutely love using the technology. They... Um, they find that it's easier than just sitting down and meditating. They find that the benefits, for example, you know, the, the classic benefits that come with meditation, maybe, I, maybe that's kind of what you're getting at, um, which are the same as what people report when using the Muse. Um, there are okay. things like um, feeling, feeling less stressed, right? Um, feeling more present, feeling more capable of actually um, um, coping with um, intense emotion, um, reduced, um, kind of constant mind wandering and a greater capacity to sort of kind of, you could say, be the calm point, the center of the, the eye of the storm, right. When, um, there's a lot going on, right. Um, okay. you know, maybe it's a stressful time and, and your mind is really active and there's that voice inside your head that is a sort of judging and, and getting critical and, and intense. Or maybe there's a lot of emotion. Um, finding, um, you know, you can imagine like stormy waters, right? And there's a lot of waves and a lot of ripples. Being able to drop down, right? 10 feet, 100 feet below the water where it's calm and still. And we all have that place within ourselves, right? That's always possible and accessible. But if we don't gain the skill set of actually going there and finding that place, well, then 
Well, then we won't. We won't know that it's there. And so we literally just get whipped around by the storm of our own mind and our own emotions. Um, and we think that we have to be that little boat riding on the surface, but we don't. We can actually be the anchor, right, held firmly to the ground as things um, can, can get intense. But as you are that anchor, things can really naturally calm down, right? Um, because what we don't realize is we're actually like a lot of the time we're amplifying things right? We're, we're feeding the monster, you know? And like, so we're, we lie in bed, we lie in bed at night, unable to fall asleep because our mind won't stop. It keeps going and going and going. But what we don't realize is we're actually feeding it. We're giving it food and the food is our attention. And no one ever taught us how to actually understand and manage our own attention, right? To actually take control of it, to take ownership of it. And so we're a victim of it in a way. And this is a lot what meditation is. It's actually like an owner's manual for your own mind. And we, we go to school <laughs> and we learn all about geography and math and all this stuff. And no one's ever like, here's how, here's how to deal with yourself, right? Here's, here's mental health. Sure. You know, we have gym class, but there's no mental health class, right? And so we're, we're really at a, like a, a kindergarten level in terms of our own hmm. um, mental health and sanity. And so um, that, those are the benefits of meditation, but it's... Um, the same benefit someone would get if they, for example, use the Muse or they use the Spire or they use, um, you know, devices that are support heart rate variability. And of course, they're going to, it's not, it's not the same, right? It's not like meditation is one thing, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of different approaches to meditation. Some have to do more specifically with quieting the mind. Some might have to do with um, emotional, um, you know, your emotions. Some might have to do with um, more uh, calmness in the body or reducing stress, you know, so there's, there's different approaches, right? But they all have to do with really building a healthy um, and, and, and flourishing relationship with ourselves is the idea. Okay. So for people listening that, you know, maybe like chickens without heads, frantic, or just wanted to, uh, you know, be calmer, more present, what are some of the first steps you'd recommend they take? You know, I would guess that throwing themselves into meditation may be, may be too difficult. I don't know for some people. What are like some real easy steps people could take to start? The easiest, easiest thing you can do is, um, now first I want to say, the easiest thing you can do is just open up your phone, go to the app store, and download one of the hundred different uh, meditation apps that are out there, right? It's, it's take you two minutes. And these are um, guided meditations. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to, like, there, there's, there's no real, like, <laughs> there's no, not a, like a strong entry point. It's not like all of a sudden you have to be sitting lotus posture on some meditation cushion. <laughs> you know, this is like really, really um, accessible. Five minutes, something you can try. Some of those apps are like Headspace, Insight Timer, there's an app called Budify, which I really like. B H U D, uh, wait, B U D D, uh, B U D D H I F Y. Anyway, you'll figure it out. Budify. Um, okay. And uh, there's another app called Sphere. S P H E R E. So that's a, that's an easy starting point. Um, if you're looking for a tech to try, which is also a really good entry point, try the Muse. Um, try the Spire. S P I R E. Try. Um, uh, HeartMath, a company called HeartMath, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H. They've got some cool tech. Um, and if you're into virtual reality, there's a whole emerging space of meditation 
uh, VR meditation experiences. So there's there's a lot out there to begin experimenting with. Yeah, I have a quick question. Um, I've heard about heart rate variability training. Can you um, can you talk about that for a minute or two? What is that heart math and how does it work? Yeah. So the idea here is that um, our the the pattern of how our heart rate changes over time is related to at a basic level how we feel and our stress level. And so by um, learning to and so if you have a technology that can actually measure that and then we can see it and learn to change it, then we can actually learn to do what's called self self-regulation. It's where we can actually actively change the way we feel. We can reduce our stress and we can put our body into a more calm state. Um, and so in a more like specific technical level, when you take a deep breath in, um, your heart rate naturally goes up. And you can actually feel this if you sort of put your finger on your neck or your wrist and you feel your pulse. Take a few deep breaths in, your heart rate goes up on the inhale, and then your heart rate naturally goes down on the exhale. Um, and this change in heart rate, um, which happens all the time, and the way that our heart rate changes is called heart rate variability. Um, and, um, and, the, the, um, and then this change in heart rate with the breath is called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And that change with the breath um, is a kind of an entry point for de-stressing our body, right? And so you can have a technology that will actually monitor um, the way your heart rate changes with your breathing um, and can actually give you feedback to guide you into what is a kind of an optimal state, right? It's sort of like if you were trying to play golf and you had a golf teacher that looks at your golf swing, right? And, you know, they've got all this sophisticated stuff that's like, oh, this arm wasn't straight enough, you know, like tracing the edge of the golf club kind of virtually and showing like the arc of it, you know, and you can really pin it down and you can say, look, here are the the five things you can tweak um, to really optimize your golf swing. It's the same thing, except what you're optimizing is your breathing and your heart rate variability, this pattern of change of heart rate. And frankly, it's the same thing with the other technologies where you're optimizing your brain state or you're optimizing, um, you know, uh, you know, other, other aspects of your physiology. Um, and except what you're optimizing for is not to have a better golf swing. What you're really optimizing for is to actually get your body back into balance because we're, frankly, we're driving ourselves crazy. <laughs> you know, we're stressed out. We're hyper critical of ourselves. That voice in our head is really, it's like not very friendly to us, you know? And so a lot of this is about um, getting back to a state where we're actually like, like friends with ourselves again. You know, we've like, we're, we're like learning to actually relate to ourselves in a kind and gentle way. And for a lot of us, that just takes some work and some pointing to. And if you just say to someone, hey, be nice to yourself or hey, go meditate, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. So if you can show them and give them real feedback using physiological, scientifically validated measures, well, that all of a sudden is a, a thing you can follow and a thing you can wrap your head around. So when you, when you, if you're not at school and you're walking around going to Starbucks or you know, wherever it is you may go, <clears throat> what's your impression of most people? How do they seem to you? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
depends on my it depends on the day <laughs> on my mood okay. you know um like what i noticed actually is it's like um uh when i'm i mean i i kind of get what you're saying it's like there's two ways i could answer that question like one sense i notice that when i'm when i'm feeling down and when i'm feeling kind of like judgmental and and um you know pessimistic when i look around and i'm meeting people and i'm and i'm doing stuff it's like i'm living in kind of a uh, a world that mirrors that you know like a very uh, kind of an unfriendly mm. world but when i'm feeling great right when i'm happy um when i'm um when i'm feeling optimistic when i'm feeling joyful when i'm feeling connected i look around what i see are smiling faces I see people that want to help me and support me and I see um, opportunity. And so what I notice is that the world that I live in is hugely dependent on how I feel. And I, I, I really, I really trust that anyone listening to this can get behind that. You know, I think we all know that at some level, right? That um, the way we feel really well, I, affects I feel the, changes. Yeah. I feel the same way. Actually. It's weird. You know, some days you feel like everyone's an asshole, but it's probably yeah. when you're in a bad mood. And then some days you feel like, <laughs> You have a lot of great interactions, you know? Yep, exactly. And so the small scale of that is, geez, like realizing it from a sense, from this basic perspective, like we don't really know any any reality outside of how we perceive reality. And this is, you know, any any neuroscientist, any anyone studying perception will, will tell you this. It's like there's no way in aside from through our senses and through our brain. Right. So we're we're literally existing in a world that it's really in our mind. Right. What we see, what we hear, what we feel, everything is interpreted by our brain. Right. So we literally exist inside of an interpreted reality. And the way that that reality is interpreted is based on us. It's based on how we experience things, how we perceive things. And so the small level here is if you change your brain. You change your body, you change the way you experience the world from the inside, then you really change the world as far as you're concerned, right? Meaning you change your relationship to the world. That's, that's small change. That's the, that's the starting point. The bigger thing here is that um, what if we do that millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people? How would the world change, right? What if, we, what if, what if politicians right? What if the people, what if entrepreneurs, what if the people that are really creating the change in, in the world also shift, dramatically shift their experience? There's a quote that I love from the United Nations. It's the first line of the UNESCO constitution. Um, and the quote says, since wars begin in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. And, and that, that lays it out real simple. Basically what they're saying is like, if you want to change the world, change human, right? Change the human mind, because that's where the world is coming from, right? When we're greedy and angry and fearful, what kind of world are we going to build? Right. And yeah, so the, same, the one my, that reflects that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You got it. And so my vision with this technology is not to, to help a bunch of you know, uh, you know, sort of upper middle class people like have a little bit less stress. I mean, that's nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But really, really what my vision here is, is to create ubiquitous, universally accessible tools that are not restricted by religion or spirituality, but are secular that can rapidly and dramatically change human 
the planet, the world we live in from the inside out by helping people to connect to the, um, the peace and the sense of connection and the compassion and love that, that everyone has inside of them. Oh, very good. Last question. It'll be a real easy softball one, but, uh, so you feel like, um, I don't know, like, I don't know, you know, your religious views, but, uh, or your spiritual views, but do you feel now that there's, uh, you know, that there's a God or there's a, a force of nature or do you feel less spiritual? I mean, how has it changed that part of you? Yeah. What I've become less and less interested in is, is belief meaning some idea, oh, there's this God or that God, or this is my religion. Or that. And I've become more and more interested in, in the deepest depths of my own experience, like a scientist of my own mind. And I'm, I'm so, um, I, I find it so much more relieving and so much more real and true um, to actually um, know, you know, whatever someone might call God or, you know, whatever word you might want to use, to know that in myself as an aspect of my own experience and to forget about any label, right? And to be just as happy if it's understood scientifically as, it is, as if it's understood religiously. Like, I don't care how it's understood. I care about mm. how it feels. And what I've realized is we have such an incredible capacity to deepen our own experience. And the other thing I've realized is that suffering is optional. We don't have to suffer. It doesn't mean that we, we don't feel pain. It doesn't mean that we don't have struggles and that life isn't hard sometimes, but that underneath that, that we can be that anchor, that we can actually find a place of stability and stillness um, and, and that we can realize that we are that as opposed to thinking that we're this constant mental chatter or this pain or this confusion or this struggle, but that actually realizing that we're something much, much deeper than that. Okay. Well, that's a good place to leave it. So, um, Mikey, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, helping everyone to figure out how to chill out and, and feel better about themselves and about life, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, hosting me, and it's, uh, it's been fun talking to you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.